We are, uh, we're glad that you're here this morning, and we're in John chapter 9, as Joe read, and uh, to be quite honest, it's a, uh, it's a fascinating story. Uh, it's a story of a man born blind, and he was healed, uh, but it deals with a very personal subject. It deals with suffering, something all of us have experienced or will experience in our life, uh, and there's some profound wisdom, and I, I love this text because Jesus does not get sucked into our approach to the topic of suffering. He transcends the topic of suffering. He transcends the question the disciples are asking. He's on his way. It's, it's likely outside of the temple because that's where beggars often sat, especially blind beggars. They, they didn't have any other opportunity to, to make income in terms of an agricultural society, and so it's not uncommon for, for that to happen. And he has been in the temple. The Feast of Tabernacles is where we were in the last two chapters, and and, and it says at the end of chapter 8 that he uh, avoided being stoned and he dismissed himself miraculously. And then it's the very next verse in chapter 9, verse 1, and he was on his way. And as he passed by a man that had been born blind, John tells us, he noticed him. Jesus noticed him. And it immediately elicits a question from the disciples, the question of suffering. And they ask a sp- specific question, and we're going to see that question in the text this morning. And then Jesus, as I said, transcends their question, and he, he changes the perspective on the conversation. He moves them from asking a question of why to the question of how. How can God be most glorified in this situation? How is God going to display redemption through this story? And so that's where we're at this morning, what we're going to see this morning, the question of suffering, then we're going to see the purpose of suffering, and then we're going to see how... God displays the redemption of Jesus Christ through this man's suffering, and it's amazing. And I want to be sensitive this morning because I'm looking around the room, and I know stories, and I know the suffering that many of you are experiencing even now. And what I love about this text, and I think that we can all appreciate about this text, is that the Bible does not give us pat answers. It doesn't just give us overly simplistic you know, phrases that we can throw out there at, at suffering. Instead, it's much deeper and broader and bigger, and I love that, and I think it reminds us that, again, Jesus is infinitely more and infinitely wiser than, than all of us. So let's look at the question that, that comes up here in the first, verse, first few verses here. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. I think you hear the question. I think you can see and understand generally what they're asking. The disciples are asking a question of cause. They're asking a question of of why. They're asking a question of fault. That's the essence of their question. Whose fault is this man's blindness? Is it his own fault or is it his parents' fault? The two options on the table of the disciples is either he's to blame, he's done something to earn this punishment, this suffering, or someone else did it to him. Those are really the popular answers today. And it's really no different. This is the popular sentiment of the day the disciples are asking. It's it's as old as Job. If you've read the book of Job, it's as old as the book of Job. It's the same wisdom that the, the friends of Job came to Job and gave him. Job had three friends. One was... Eliphaz, and he basically told Job, only those who sin suffer. Job, you're suffering, 
Therefore, there must be sin in your life. That's the wisdom that his friend gave him. The next friend came along and said, your children died. Job had many children and they died. And and he's so bold to say, your children died because of sin in their life. And then the last friend came along and said, Job, you actually deserve far worse than all that you've suffered. Please, don't be that friend. Don't ever especially in my life, come to me and give any of that wisdom. In fact, Job calls that wisdom worthless. He calls them worthless friends, worthless wisdom, miserable comforters. In fact, God comes to the rescue of Job, comes in and steps in the fray and says to the friends, you have not spoken of me what is right. So your wisdom is not accurate. In other words, you don't know what you're talking about. That sentiment that all sinners, all suffering is a result of personal sin is the same sentiment the disciples are are asking and believing because it's the popular sentiment of this day and it's still the popular sentiment of our day. It's the natural assumption that we all make. Like so many others, the disciples assumed that suffering is always the result of personal sin. That's their assumption, that suffering is always the result of personal sin. And God flatly rejects that wisdom in the book of Job, and Jesus flatly transcends that wisdom and shifts the conversation to something radically different in this, in this text. The, 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 to understand this question a little bit more, we need to understand that the, the disciples are asking a question of fault. That's what they want to know. If they can pin it on someone and something that that one person did, then what can they do? They can avoid that sin, they can avoid that behavior, and thereby avoid the uncomfortable life of suffering. Do you see what's happening here? If they can find fault, if they can identify whose fault it is, then they can find the solution within their own means to avoid suffering. That's what they're asking, what they're getting at. Whose fault is it that this man was born blind? Who violated the laws of God that resulted in this physical suffering? They assume that all personal suffering is a result of personal sin. And they only see these two options, the man or his parents. It's either his fault or someone else's fault. That's what they're assuming here. And in either case, this is what's happening. And this is so important for us to understand. And it's so important because I've heard it three different times and three different occasions just this week from people in our own congregation. And I have wrestled with this same sentiment and thought. And it's the difference between the gospel and works righteousness. And it's so important for us to understand the gospel because if we don't, as followers of Christ, our default mechanism, the air we breathe, the world we live in is a works righteousness-based world. And if we don't remember the gospel and understand the gospel, then we will walk in our Christian faith. We'll start with Jesus. I need him. But then we will walk down the life of Christian faith and we will walk away from the gospel, maybe not knowingly. We will forget the gospel. And in that In that moment, when we forget the gospel, we will revert, we will default to works-based understanding of suffering. So let's understand this. On the the one hand, we have the gospel. The gospel says that we can do nothing to merit God's favor. Joe just said that when he was praying and when he was talking. We We can do nothing to merit God's favor. I think that we understand that. We've harped on that. We talk about that all the time. It's not by merit. It's not by works. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, period. We don't contribute anything to our salvation. 
We are not saved by works. We don't do anything to merit God's favor. The inverse of that, the, the opposite of that, is that we can do nothing to lose God's favor. And that's a profound truth that we have to remember. It's the other half of the gospel coin. We have to remember. If we don't remember that, then we will default and walk into, unknowingly maybe, a works-based view of suffering. We can do nothing to earn it. We can do nothing to lose it. And where do we understand this and how do we understand this? We, it's throughout the scriptures. If you read Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the verse that's referenced here, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation, it means punishment. Let that sit on your shoulders for just a second. There is therefore now no more punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because all the possible punishment and wrath of God was poured out on your Savior, your substitute, Jesus. And therefore, God is not looking for ways to be punitive in his punishment towards his sons and daughters. He has poured out all of his wrath and all of his punishment on Jesus. When you read Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 says that through faith in Christ or our justification in, in Christ, our new identity in Christ, the work of Christ on our behalf, through that we have peace with God. And then Paul goes on just a few verses later, verse 3, 4, and 5, that because we know that we have peace with God, we can walk into any circumstance, any adversity, any trial, any suffering with joy. What? Why? Because we know we have peace with God and that this suffering is not immediately because he's punishing me. It's not automatically, my mind ought to not automatically jump to this is punishment for something in, in, within my life. You can look at James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 as well that we consider it joy. Consider all trials, all suffering, all adversity joy. Because we know that there is a purpose in suffering. And that's where Jesus is going to go in this text. He dodges, he avoids, he sidesteps, however you want to word it. He transcends the question of why and he moves to the question of purpose. And that's profound. And that's so important for us to understand. The opposite of this is a works-based righteousness or a, a merit-based uh, 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 relationship with God. In a works-based system, in a works-righteousness understanding of, of my relationship to God, it means that I earn God's favor through my moral performance record. I have to hold up my resume of all that I've done for God. And I say, this is why you should accept me. Look at all that I've done. Look at all that I've prayed. Look at the intensity of my, my faith. Look at the sincerity of my faith, who is that based on? What is your acceptance based on in that moment? It's based on you. It's based on your performance. It's based on your resume. It's based on your work. In a works righteousness model, we have to earn God's favor through moral performance. Now look at the opposite of this. The opposite of this is that the, the other side of the coin is that we earn punishment and suffering also through our moral performance record. That if I earn God's favor through my moral performance and my, my, the intensity of my faith, then what happens when I'm not is morally perfect? What happens when I sin? What happens when I'm wrong? What happens when I don't perform up to expectation? 
The, the opposite. I, 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 I earn God's disfavor. I earn his punishment, his punitive punishment. And therefore, every trial and every experience of suffering is not joy. It's not opportunity. It's God punitively punishing me because I did something wrong. Here's how it plays out. I heard it, like I said, three different times this week. In one case, a mother is wrestling with some health concerns in their child's life, and literally, she says, I can't help but feel like it's because of past sin in my life that God's punishing my child. Maybe you've been there. In another case, I have a friend in our congregation that is, is wrestling with anxiety and the pressure and the stress, and they, they say, I think God's punishing me with this anxiety because of past sin in my life. In another case, something didn't work out in, in someone's job and in, in, in how they thought things collapsed, and, and they, they, they literally said, I think it's because I didn't pray enough. I didn't do enough. These are believers. These are, these are people that understand that they need Jesus, that he is the, 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 the gospel is true, that he is the one, the, the substitute, the one that saves us. But do you see how easily we can default into a works-based view of suffering? It's the same thing the disciples are asking here. Who sinned that this man is blind? What did they do so that we can avoid it? And the tragedy is it leaves us without assurance. It leaves us without hope. It, that is not what the gospel gives. The gospel gives us assurance. It gives us hope. It gives us freedom. Why? Because we know there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that all the punishment that I could ever receive was poured out on Jesus and God's not going to take a second payment for that. That's so important for us to understand, and that's what's happening here in this text. The difference between these two things is the gospel versus a works-based righteousness. Listen, you, we cannot take a gospel approach to salvation and then a works-based view of suffering. It doesn't work. It, those two things don't go together. It, we, we, if we're saved by grace, then we also can't lose that. Jesus says in John 10, we'll get to it, no one can snatch you out of my hands, not even you. That's profound, and it's weighty, and it's, it's amazing, and it's good news. It's the good news of the gospel, and we cannot forget it. Listen, maybe this will help. This is generally uh, an understanding of suffering that we need to adopt and we need to understand, and maybe this would help all of us to understand this. All suffering is generally the result of sin in the fall. We understand that. Genesis chapter 2, chapter 3, all suffering in general is the result of sin and the fall. But not all personal suffering is a result of personal sin. That's so important. If we forget that, then we're assuming we, we, we're defaulting to this works-based approach to suffering that I somehow did something and God's punitively punishing me and, and, and therefore I've got to figure out what I did and I've got to avoid that thing and, and I've got to, what are we doing again? We're, we're defaulting into works. I've got to earn it. I've got to do something. I've got to, instead of resting and instead of asking a bigger question that Jesus asked here, 
And listen, beyond that statement, beyond that, that all suffering generally is a result of sin, that, 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 that catastrophe and cancer and everything else is generally the result of sin, but not all personal suffering, beyond that, we can't really say much more than that. And to do so is to go further than the Bible allows, than, than really God allows. I love Calvin's wisdom on this, and he does this in a number of places with some doctrines that he's pinned with. He warns and he gives some caution. He says, when the causes of, of afflictions are concealed, we ought to restrain our curiosity, that we may neither dishonor God nor be malicious towards our brethren. When it's not obviously clear, we ought to restrain our curiosity. We ought not to try to figure out all the whys. Instead, let's ask a different question, and that's what Jesus leads us to. The different question is, God, how can you be most glorified in this circumstance? The Bible doesn't allow for pat answers. I so appreciate that, and Jesus doesn't give them one in this response that he gives. It's not a simple question, and there aren't simple answers, and I love this, and I think this, this just reiterates for me that Jesus is so infinitely beyond you and I, that he's not just some good moral teacher, that he is infinitely beyond. A good moral teacher would give a thesis after this, a dissertation after this, of explanation of suffering and why. And that's what the disciples are asking. The, the topic of trying to understand suffering and evil is theodicy. They're trying to give an explanation for why evil and suffering exist, particularly God's relationship to evil and suffering. A good moral teacher would simply give a long dissertation. Instead, Jesus says in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Neither. <laughs> he transcends the, the question. And he says, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, so Jesus gives us something here that I think is, is, is so important. I was talking to uh, an avid fisherman recently, and they were telling me, and I didn't know this, and maybe you're, you guys are fishermen. I'm not a fisherman, so I'd fall in. So the, 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 he was telling me that the anchor is one of the greatest safety tools on a boat. It's like, the anchor? How is that a safety tool? He says, because in any storm, when you drop, if you have an, an anchor and you have enough line, you drop your anchor and you let out enough line, your boat will right itself with the current, and it'll ride out the waves. Instead of being capsized, it'll ride into the waves, it'll, it'll ride itself, and, and you'll, and he said, so it's a great, so we, what we need is an anchor in storms. I, I talk to pilots, and pilots say the same thing. They have something similar. They have an altimeter, so before they enter into a storm, and they lose sight of the ground, and they can't see which way is up, they set their altimeter. They set their instruments. Why? Because when you're in the storm, it's so easy to forget these truths. And that's what Jesus is about to give us. He is about to give us an altimeter and an anchor in the midst of storms. Something that we must set and must have on the boat before we go into the storm. Something we must set before we fly into the storm. And by having it, it means that then in the storm, we can put our anchor out, we can, we can read the altimeter, and we can understand we're not going to smash into the ground. <laughs> and so this is what Jesus leads us to. The disciples ask a question of fault. Don't miss this. They're asking a question of fault. Jesus, on the other hand, says it's neither this man's nor his parents' sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The disciples are asking a question of why, and Jesus redirects them to the question of how. 
They're asking a question of fault, and Jesus says, this isn't a matter of fault, this is a matter of opportunity. This isn't a question of cause, this is a question of opportunity. It's, this is what Jesus is asking here. The question is not, why is this happening to this man, or why is this happening to me? The question ought to be, how will this occasion glorify God? How can this occasion be used to glorify God. God, how will you teach me through this? How will you shape my character through this? How will you mold me and conform me into the image of Christ through this? How will you glorify yourself? No, 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 not just how, but please, Lord, use this to glorify yourself. Do you see the difference between these two questions? This is what they're asking. This is the question we all default to in suffering. Why is this happening to me? I've been there. God, this isn't the plan that I had for my life. What have you done? It's a question of cause. I'm, I'm accusing him. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this in my life? My life is over. This isn't going to work. This isn't how things are supposed to be. Instead of asking the question of why, Jesus redirects them to the question of how. How will God be glorified in the midst of this circumstance and this tragedy and this, circumstance, and this issue? So he does it in two ways. The first phrase that's so important, and it's the anchor that we have to have in the storm. It's the altimeter that we have to have in the storm, and it's two words. In some translations, it's but that. In other translations, it's so that. So that. It was neither this man's sins or his parents that he was born blind, but that. So that. That's a, that's a statement of purpose. That's a statement of intentionality. That's a statement that God is working in this circumstance, even though it is impossible to see. God is working at this very moment. He has been working up to this moment, and he's working in this very moment so that. For purpose, for cause, for, for intentionality. The blindness, this man's blindness in this encounter serve a divine purpose. This is what Jesus is saying. And it calls to mind so many stories that were told over and over again in the scriptures. One in particular, the story of Joseph in Genesis. The story of Joseph. Joseph was betrayed by his family, sold into slavery by his family, forsaken by his family, left in prison because of an accusation of sexual assault, forgotten in prison for years, all of this happens to Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, one of the great phrases of the Bible, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. Do you hear what that's saying? The Lord was not off of his throne. God did not forget about Joseph. God had not forsaken Joseph. He was fully present and fully aware. And then, what we get to at the end of the story with Joseph, when his brothers who betrayed him are standing before him, he says the famous statement, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God leveraged it for good. God used it for good. God is using it for his kingdom. That is a profound truth and insight that if we don't set the anchor in the altimeter before the storm, we will lose sight of it and end the storm. 
We have to have it before the storm because it is so crucial and true, and we have to cling to it in the storm. God has not forsaken me. He is with me. God is working this for good, for his good, for my good, and for his glory. Here's here's a a truth that we, we need to understand. Although we may not always know why something has happened, we can know that. That's the story of Joseph, and that's what Jesus is telling us with these two words, so that. We can't always know why, but we can know that. What are you talking about? What does that mean? We can know that God is still on his throne. We can know that God has not forsaken me. We can know that God still knows my name. We can know that God is the one who can calm the waters of any storm, that God is the one that can part the waters of any storm, that God is the one that knows my name and knows the hairs on my head, that God is the one that appointed my days and appointed my time and and appointed my place and boundaries of which every man and woman and child lives. He is still on his throne. We can't always know why, but we can know that. And that's an anchor that we can hold on to. And that's what Jesus is telling us here, so that my own personal walk through different various trials and adversity and suffering in my own life, one really helpful quote from John Newton. He's a writer of Amazing Grace. I've shared this before. He says, Though dark be my way, since he is my guide, tis mine to obey, tis his to provide. By prayer let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. That's not confidence in self. That's confidence in Christ. You see the difference? That's not confidence in what I can do or what I did. That's confidence in what Christ and what he did on my behalf. That's the difference between the gospel and works righteousness. And the phrase in the middle is so essential. Tis mine to obey, tis his to provide. I have a role, I have a responsibility. Regardless of circumstances, it's mine to trust him and to obey him, and he has a role and he has a responsibility. It's not something I gave to him, it's something he claims for himself, and he tells me from the beginning to the end of the Bible that he is the provider. He is the one that protects. He is the one that guides. He is the one that comforts. And he is the one that can be trusted. Two words, profound truths. We've got so much more to go. So here's, here's where we go. Knowing that this benevolent, loving God is governing all things, we know that he's working. There's the second half of this statement here where we see purpose. So he says, so that. It's not this man or his, his parents' blind, uh, sorry, sin that caused this blindness. No, but that or so that. And then he finishes his sentence. The works of God might be displayed in him. The works of God might be displayed in him. Anytime you read the phrase, the works of God in the Gospel of John, do you know what it means? It means the works of God in Jesus in redemption. So, so, so Jesus is saying, this man was not born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin. It's so that... The works of God in Christ, in Jesus is speaking, in me, would be displayed in his life. That's what Jesus is is saying here. And and so what are those works specifically? Or what is that work specifically? If it's the work of redemption, it's the work of the good news of the gospel. Don't don't lose me here because this is so essential to understanding the rest of everything that happens in this story. Jesus says it's not this man, it's not his parents that, that in their sin that caused this blindness. It's so that 
the works of redemption, the work of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ substituting himself on our behalf might be displayed. Let's unpack that just a little bit more. Because that's where we land here. This entire scene, this entire miracle, this entire thing is to display the work of redemption. It's to display the work of redemption. In verse 6, Jesus says, uh, sorry, in verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He repeats something that he's already said. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who follows me, anyone who trusts me, anyone who obeys me, anyone who submits to me will have the light of life. Sometimes also the life of light. So it's back and forth. But either way, we'll have life and we'll have light. We'll see clearly. We'll understand. Anyone who follows me will see clearly. We'll understand accurately. We'll, their life will be transformed. Light will flood in. So, so Jesus says that in 8.12. He says it again here in verse 5. And right on the hinges of that, John tells us, having said, verse 6, having said these things, Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sense. So he went and he washed, and he came back seeing. The light of the world is bringing light to a blind man's eyes. This is all for the purpose of displaying redemption. We have to continue to unpack this. There's two ways that this is happening. One is in general and one is more specific. In general here, what we see, and this is so important, when we look in, in all the other, we've already covered John chapter 4, John chapter 5. When Jesus healed somebody, what did he do? He didn't get down and spit and take dirt and do anything. He simply commanded someone to be healed. In, in John chapter 4, he healed the official son. And he, he healed him from a distance. The official, he just said simply, go, your son will be healed. He, he said, he gave a command and, and the son was healed. When he heals the paralytic in John chapter 5, the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, he just simply said, get up and walk. Take your mat and walk. He commanded, what? Jesus, what on earth is he doing here? He's taking mud He's spitting on it. He's taking dirt from the ground. And he's using something from his mouth. And he's combining those two things and life is coming forth. Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. What did God do? But he took dust from the earth and he breathed into it. And what came out? But life, your life, my life, the life of man. What is Jesus on? What's on display here generally? Jesus is God. He is the great I am, which we just saw. He is the one with the power to breathe life, to heal, to bring light into life. But there's something even more in the general understanding of what is on display here. In Genesis chapter 2, God says in verse 16 and 17, says to Adam, he says, you can have everything in the garden, but you cannot have that one tree. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. It was a command with a promise. It was a command without all the details with a promise. And here is in, implied in that command, it's a request to trust Will you trust me that I know, because I'm God, everything about you and everything that you need? Will you trust me? 
Or will you take things into your own hands as your own king, your own ruler, your own savior? Which will you do? That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Implied is an invitation to obey without full explanation. It's what we all say to our children. Why? Just do it. (laughs) What are we saying? Trust me. Obey. Follow. Listen. That's what's happening in Genesis 2. Now look at the words of Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate and she handed some to Adam. What happens here? Will you trust me? The answer is, no, 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 I will trust my eyes. I will trust what I see. I will trust what I think is right. I will trust myself. And what instantly happens? The entire earth is plunged. Creation, you and I, are plunged into darkness, into chaos, into death, into sin. All of this begins to happen as a result. Now what has happened? In Jesus, he comes in John chapter 8 and he says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will have the light of life. What's he saying? Trust me. Submit to me. Follow me. You were in light. You went into darkness. The light has come. Now trust me and your eyes will be opened. You will see accurately, truly, rightly. You will see true truth and really real. You you will be changed. Life will come in. Do you want a visible example of that? John chapter 9. So in a general way, what's happening here is that Jesus is inviting us to obey without all the details and without full explanation And we see a tangible example of this in John chapter 9. And so in this way, this this healing is a visible display to all of us of the work of redemption that Jesus has come to secure and to offer for us. He has come to make blind people see. He has come to make spiritually blind people spiritually alive, spiritually see. This is what Jesus has come for. This is what he came to accomplish to set us free from the bondage of sin and death and to liberate us and to walk into life and light and freedom. But there's a second and there's a more specific way this story is intended to display the works of redemption and it's intended to display that to a specific people. Specifically, a people who claim to see. Religious leaders who claim that they see clearly, who claim that they know what's best, who claim that they understand clearly. And what's happening here is Jesus begins to reveal to them and challenge them, no, you actually are blind. That's entirely what we saw in in chapter 8. No, you don't know. No, you don't understand. No, you don't. You're blind. And now I'll show you. I'll give you a visible, tangible example in this man. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Jesus says to the man, and it's so, it's so simple, so profound. He says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. John's very clear to make sure that we understand, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. John specifically draws our attention. Go and wash in a pool called sent, called messenger. He is sending a messenger before all of these crowds to a pool called messenger 
to display that he is the messenger with all power to liberate their blind eyes. That was a lot of messengers. But that's what's happening here. This is what's happening. That This man and his miraculous healing are intended to be a visible and tangible parable for stubborn religious leaders who oppose Jesus and refuse to see him for who he is. This man is blind, yet he trusts and he obeys and he goes to a pool and he's healed and he comes back seeing. And what does he do that? Who does he do that in front of? He goes in front of all of these people who claim to see and yet are blind. He's a witness. He's an example. He's a, he, he's, he's a testimony of who Jesus is and what he came to do. He came to make the blind see. And he did it in front of all of these crowds. This miraculous story of healing is also, as we, as we drill down in the specifics, and this is so profound and so amazing, this story is intended to take our minds back to an, another Old Testament story where, some, where, where a stubborn individual submits and is healed. And the story is in 2 Kings chapter 5, and it's the story of Naaman and the prophet Elisha. In the story, it's, it's a profound story. Naaman is a great man, it says. He's, a high, he's high in favor. He's a mighty man of valor. He's the commander of the army of the kings of Syria. He's wealthy. He's prominent. He's influential. He has all the resources. He has all of the power. He has all of the might. And it says in a little phrase, but he was a leper. So he had all of the power and all of the might, but he had this suffering in his life. And so Naaman hears about a prophet in the land of Israel named Elisha. And he goes with all of his wealth and all of his resources and all of his horses and chariots to the, to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel is like, don't come to me. I can't do anything for you. And, and it's, go over there to Elisha. He goes to Elisha. He pulls up at Elisha's house. All of his army, it says, are surrounding him surrounding the house. Naaman's standing outside. He has all of the wealth and all the authority and all the power, and Elisha does not even go out to him. He sends a messenger to speak to Naaman, and what does the messenger say? He says, go and wash in the Jordan. And what does Naaman do? Naaman is furious. It says he is enraged because he has all of the power and all of the ability and all of the resources. And this man didn't even come out to see me, but he sent a messenger to me. And it says he turned away to walk away in rage. And and some little servant of his comes up to him meagerly and pleads with him and prevails. He He says, but Naaman... You came to be healed, and this prophet has given you the only answer. Won't you trust? Won't you obey? Won't you go and do what he said? And Naaman humbles himself, and he goes to the Jordan River, and he washes seven times, and he's healed of his leprosy. And he says, there is no God like God, the God of Israel. There is no other God but the God of Israel. What happens in that story is a proud man humbles himself at the message of a messenger that's sent to him, and he's healed. What's happening in this story? But the messenger of God has come, and he's sending a messenger with a message in front of everybody down to a pool, go and wash. And he does, and he's healed. 
What is he saying to these Pharisees, these religious leaders who are claiming to see? You do not see and you will not be healed by your might, by your strength, by your effort. You'll only be healed by humbling yourself. Only healed by bending the knee and bowing the head. And in both cases, in John 9 with the blind man and in 2 Kings 5, there's, the response is faith. So the question of the text is, what will these Pharisees do? What will they do? Will they listen to the multitude of messengers that God has sent to them? Or will they listen to the messenger that stands before them telling this story and, 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 and healing this man? Will they listen to the messengers that, and the message that's been proclaimed that they are actually blind and they're in desperate need of sight and life and the only hope and the only answer is Jesus. It's not by might. It's not by right. It's not by heritage. It's not by proximity to the temple. It's only in and through Jesus, the work that he has done. Another question the text forces is, what will I do? Will I trust and obey Jesus despite my circumstances, regardless of what it costs me personally? Will I see my circumstances and trust my eyes, or will I trust the Savior that stepped into my suffering on my behalf? Will I trust my eyes and my wisdom and my strength and my ability, or will I trust the Savior? You know what's fascinating to me is that Jesus took mud and put it on a blind man's eyes. What? Why is he doing that? What is that about? Some say, like I mentioned, it's a reference to God breathing in and taking dust from the earth. I think it's certainly that. It's displaying his authority. Some say by putting the mud on the eyes, he's highlighting the miraculous cure I think that what he's doing is putting on mud on the eyes is highlighting not simply the miraculous cure, but the miraculous, unbelievable trust and obedience of the blind man. Jesus makes the situation darker. He doesn't make it better instantly. He makes the, the eyes darker and he puts mud on his eyes and despite the absurdity of the situation, the man stumbles, bumbles blind with mud on his eyes and spit, walking down to a pool and he has to go down layers of stairs at the pool of Siloam and through crowds and everyone sees it. There's no missing that this is happening. And then what we see at the latter half of the text is everyone not only sees it, but they begin to talk about it. This man is intended to be a witness to what true trust, true faith looks like. Regardless of the circumstances, I will trust. I don't know why, I don't always know why, but I will trust. Let's give a few concluding thoughts and application here. What initially appeared to be a story of suffering, it certainly addresses the topic of suffering, is really a story about redemption and our only way of accessing it. This, this first, I want us to understand, this story reminds us that God's saving power is displayed, is always displayed and experienced through a suffering person. I want you to understand specifically first, the story of the gospel clearly reveals that God's saving power is displayed and experienced through a suffering person. I, I don't know how the, the, the prosperity gospel gets by the fact that Jesus died and bled on a cross I don't know how we can dodge the fact that, that our Savior and King suffered on a cross. The gospel and the power of the gospel is always displayed in a suffering individual. And this story is no different. I want you to think, I, I literally was telling Taylor Lee this the other night, and I, I almost started crying thinking about this. This man 
This man who is blind, it says, was born blind. I don't know how old he was. I'm 42. Maybe he's 42. But 42 years ago, this was a baby in some parent's arms. Blind. And in those parents' arms, with all the confusion of why and all the unanswered questions, and in those parents' arms, and in that lifetime of stumbling and bumbling blind and begging, the question of why was never answered. But the question of purpose is answered here. All throughout that time, somehow God, somehow a blind little baby fits in the economy of God to display his glory and his power. Do you understand how magnificent and infinite and and, and just transcendent the wisdom of God is that he can even use a little baby and his suffering for the glory of God? Does that fit in your understanding of God? Do you you say and you say, I can't accept a God who would do that? Then you miss the story of the gospel altogether. Because this story points us to another baby that was born to suffer and to die. And this time to suffer and to die on your behalf. And his name is Jesus. The the glory of the gospel, the, the good news of the gospel, the power of the gospel is always displayed through suffering. The suffering of an individual and it's displayed through the suffering of Jesus Christ. This radically changes all my suffering and it gives hope and it gives purpose. A second thing that's so important for us to see in this text, this is the good news of the gospel on display here. This is the good news of the gospel that God is not distant from our suffering. That he's not aloof and far away. That he knows our names and he knows the name of our suffering. He comes into our suffering. And how does he come? He comes in the person and work of Jesus. And what does he do? He suffers on our behalf. This is the good news of the gospel. A third point in application is this tells us that he empathizes with our weakness and suffering. That Jesus understands our weakness and our suffering. We just glanced right over it, but how does this story begin? And he passed by, and Jesus saw a man blind from birth. Do you understand what that says, what that means? That the the man did not escape Jesus' view. That Jesus saw him. That Jesus was aware of him. That Jesus cared for him. That he, he, he did something in the situation for him. This is profound. He understands our weaknesses. He understands our suffering. He understands our adversity, our trials. That He understands the questions of why and why we ask the questions of why. He understands the hurt and the pain. He experienced it himself on the cross for you and I. He knows suffering personally. He knows it by name and by experience. He's near to the brokenhearted. He's near to you, and he knows suffering by name and and by experience because he also suffered. And he suffered so that you and I would not experience the greatest suffering of sin and death and separation from God. This is unlike any other worldview. This is unlike any other religion. There is no other worldview, there is no other religion that says that the God of that religion stooped bent down, condescended to the birth as a child, ultimately to the 
death on a cross, that declares something about the greatness of our Savior and the greatness of our God and His grace. I love this poem by Edward Shalito. He's a Methodist minister in World War I, and he wrote this poem. He said, our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Where is the rescue? Where is the hope? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we know thy grace. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to the throne. But to our wounds, God's wounds can speak in the last phrase, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. He has wounds. He has scars. He knows what suffering is like, and he did it on your behalf. And then lastly, not only can he empathize with our suffering, he's also powerful and wise enough to leverage suffering for our good and his glory. He is wise enough and powerful enough to leverage suffering for our good and his glory. He does it in this man's life. He leveraged somehow a baby born blind all for the glory of God to show and display the redemption of God, the work of God, the care and compassion of God. He somehow did that and he did it also in the cross in Jesus. He leveraged suffering for the kingdom of God, the good of of us, of you and I, and the glory of God. The cross is the greatest display of God's leveraging suffering, of using suffering, of having a purpose in suffering. And he leverages it in his son to pay the ransom for you and I. And here's what's fascinating to me. I mean, we could spend, I feel like weeks and weeks in this one text. But here's what's fascinating. We, we skipped over a few verses. Verse four, Jesus says something interesting. We can't miss it. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Do you realize what Jesus is saying here? Not only does he leverage suffering in this blind man, not only does he leverage suffering on the cross, he is inviting you and I to leverage our suffering. He's inviting us into the game. He's saying it's not enough for you to be spectators. It's, it's not enough for you to sit on the sidelines. No, I'm, I'm leveraging your suffering too for the glory of God. And I invite you to leverage your circumstances and your adversity and your trials and your suffering. You're not a victim. He's, he's using, he, he's working, he's inviting you to, in, to bring your story to bear on the kingdom of God. To be a witness sent to the pool. To display the works of God. He's inviting you and I to leverage our own stories. I once was lost, but now I see. And when asked, how is it that you see? How is it that you have hope despite the tragedy you're facing? It's we do what this man did in these latter verses. We didn't even read it. He points and he says, the man Jesus did it. He is my hope. He is my comfort. He's my substitute. He's how I see. He's how I have hope in the midst of tragedy. He, we're not being told to hide our suffering. We're being invited to, to use it, to participate in the kingdom of God in displaying the work of redemption. And listen, there are no pat answers in the Bible. Jesus, in, in this situation, the, the glory of God and his redemption is, is seen and displayed in healing. But don't forget, there's plenty of other stories in the Bible and plenty of other stories by experience where there isn't healing, that doesn't mean his glory is not displayed. 
Paul said, please, Lord, remove this thorn of flesh. He prayed three times, and, and the answer wasn't healing. The answer was, my grace is sufficient. So somehow, healing can be used in the glory of God to display his redemption and also not healing. His grace is sufficient. Somehow, his grace being sufficient is displaying the, the glory of God, the works of Jesus in the cross. This is a, a remarkable text. I know that there are some of you, most of us are probably right on the, the, the front edge or coming out of suffering, and so this is wisdom that we, we can receive well. Some of you are in it. Some of you are flying in the storm, and you don't need me to point out, hey, your top button on your shirt's messed up. <laughs> That's annoying. That's the wisdom of Job, of, the, of, friend, of, the Job's, of Job's friends. I know, I, and my prayer all this week as we've studied this text, that this not be, that this not be crushing, but this be good news, because this is the good news of the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take your word and take these, these thoughts and I pray that you would, you would use them. I pray that you would comfort. I pray that you would encourage. I pray that the Lord, there are so many people bound up in, they, they, they confess Christ, they, they're, they're walking with Christ, and yet defaulting to a works-based view of suffering, that some, something they did earned this. Lord, may they walk in the freedom of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation, no more punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we shift our thinking from why, which we will spin out of control and never find an answer to, to how. Lord, how can you use this? How can I play a part in displaying the work of redemption, the rescue spiritually that you offer, the sustaining grace that you give? How can I participate in that? Lord, thank you for inviting us into participation in that. I pray that the gospel has been proclaimed and I pray that it goes forth and it bears fruit. I pray that that fruit is freedom and assurance and comfort. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We end our services, if you're guests with us, we end our services with a blessing. It comes from Numbers chapter 6. I want to I read it to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I think it's especially fitting in light of what we've been talking about. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May you know.